For those of you who are visitors here, my name is Pastor Steve. I'm one of the pastors around here. We're going to give the parents a couple more minutes to make their way back in from dropping kids off at Children's Church. And uh, it is this morning I would like to point out this. I hadn't even, didn't even realize it when I was preparing my sermon this week, um, even though I touch on it some towards the end, that this, mo- this Sunday is uh, Pentecost Sunday. It is the day where we celebrate a, the birth of the church in many ways. So it, it, as we go through this morning's sermon, there is a, like I said, there is a section because we're thinking about the kingdom of God. So I will read the passage. We're going to be back in the book of Luke, back in chapter 13, and we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 13, going from verse 10 down to verse 21. So I will read this passage, and then we will pray, and then we will get to work on the passage before us. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold... There was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years, and she was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he, said, he called her over and said, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And she, he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days which work ought to be done, come on one of those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Do not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And he said, as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious, all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Let's pray. Lord and Father, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and our King, through the power of the Spirit, open your word to us this morning. Help us to understand the gloriousness of this passage, the deep truths that are here for us, things that are here to encourage our hearts, teach us of you and draw our attentions to you, and correct things in our lives that are unhelpful. Lord, I pray that as we work through this passage this morning, that the thing that we will all come away with is that we have seen a bigger and brighter picture of Christ than we had before. Holy Spirit, calm our hearts. Focus our minds. Help us to gird up our loins for action as we work 
to understand the words that you inspired by your, by your apostles and by your writers. Show us Jesus, and it will be good. And I pray, amen. So Pilgrim's Progress is one of my favorite books. I read it every January. I read part one and part two. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with the book of Pilgrim's Progress, it is otherwise known by its full title, The Pilgrim's Progress from This World to That Which Is to Come Delivered in the Similitude of a Dream. So for short, we'll just call it Pilgrim's Progress. It is a classic Puritan name of a book. It is an allegorical tale about a pilgrim named Christian who leaves his home in the city of destruction and travels through the celestial city, otherwise known as heaven. It has two parts. In part one, follows Christian as he goes on his journey. And then in part two, it follows his wife, Christiana, because Bunyan was super clever with names. Some are long, some are just the same, with another letter added at the end. And she travels with her four sons, and they go on the same journey. You know, if you've, ever, if you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, I'm going to warn you that there might be some spoiler alerts as we go through here, but I think the statute of limitations on a book that was written 345 years ago may have expired. So if I spoil something for you, no worries. And if you are one of those who doesn't like the book of Pilgrim's Progress, then I'll pray that you become a Christian. So for years, Pilgrim's Progress has been seen as one of the most impactful religious books ever written. And there are some statistics that bear this out. So the first part was published 345 years ago in the year 1678. And the second part was published six years later in 1684. And since that time, the book has never been out of print. It boasts over 1,300 editions and has sold well in excess of 250 million copies, making it one of the most sold books ever. So there are some parallels in the passage, which I will be alluding to as we go through this, this passage. There are some parallels between Pilgrim's Progress and the passage before us. You know, we have Christian who starts on a journey and he's hunched over and he's weighed down with a burden to sin. And then we have at the end, we have Christian's witness brings others and encourages them to, to follow in his, the perilous road of being a Christian to the celestial city. So the main point of the passage before us, as I see it, is this. Jesus has freed us from sin, Satan, and the condemnation of the law. Now rejoice in his ever-expanding kingdom of freedom. And as we work through the passage with this theme in mind, there are going to be three points that are going to guide us. Point number one, we are bound by Satan and by sin. Number two, we are bound by the works of the law. Number three, we have a kingdom of freedom in Christ, and it grows from little to big. This should take around 45 minutes, maybe a little longer or so. So as we move into point number one, bound by Satan. So if we go back to the beginning, verse 10. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years, and she was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disabilities. And he laid hands on her, and immediately she was made straight. We can skip down. It says, Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath to untie his ox and his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? 
And ought not this daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? So to kind of set the tone, set the picture of what we're looking at this morning, the first century Sabbath synagogue worship service had a liturgical flow that started with a profession of faith where all of the people would stand together and they would quote the Shema. The Shema comes from the Old Testament and it starts out with, hear, O Israel. The word hear is the Hebrew word for uh, is the Hebrew word Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might, etc. So they would begin by professing their faith, professing who God is. And from there, they would recite a prayer, which included 18 separate sections of request for blessing and recognition of blessing from God. And then there would be a reading from the Torah or the law, and then also from the prophets, and then there would be a sermon. So our passage this morning opens in the middle of one of these services, where we find Jesus teaching in the synagogue. So at this point, they would have all recited together the Shema. They would have all stood, and they would have prayed the, the 18 blessings. And so as Jesus taught, he noticed that there was a woman bent over and bound with what Luke describes as a disabling spirit, and Jesus attributes to the binding of Satan in verse 16. The state that we find this woman in is that she is bent over and unable to straighten herself. And Jesus says this was a condition that she had endured for 18 years. There was nothing that she could do to relieve it. You know, there are some traditions that will take this verse and others like it and say that it points to the fact that all physical ailments are the result of demonic activity. And what we can say, because Jesus does, is that this binding is in some way from Satan himself. It does not mean that some sort of casting out of Satan or, or demons is necessary for any and all healing. Notice that Jesus does not actually directly cast out a demon or spirit, but he says that she is freed from her disability. What we can say, and Jamie spoke directly to this last week, is that all tragedy and all suffering is a result of the fall. You know, Romans chapter 8 is one of my favorite sections in Scripture, and it is in Romans 8 that we find the following. For I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing to the glory that is be, to be revealed for us. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await the adoption of, as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So whether Satan directly bound this particular woman or her disability was the result of the fall through the temptation of Satan back in Genesis chapter 3, it is in this woman that we see the subjection of the world to futility. Just think of the groaning that this woman must have uttered. There was no doctor who could help her. There was no prayers that she had uttered for the past 18 years that alleviated her pain and suffering. Before we come to Christ in faith, we are bound in our sin nature. 
Like Christian from Pilgrim's Progress, we are bent down with the burden of sin that was on his back. And I can personally attest to the fact that even as believers, we sometimes can carry the weight of guilt on our shoulders, even though Christ has forgiven us. We can, as men and women declared freed by God, live as if doubled over under the weight of faithlessness and joylessness. It's like a man who turns to the bottle to mask the sin of adultery or porn addiction. Or the young woman who attempts to curate a false image of a perfect life on social media with pictures of her children and of her home to mask her loneliness and feelings of inadequacy as she compares herself to all the other influencer moms, your brother and sister. These things are only more burdens. But it is more than just masking the pain or guilt. Sometimes the burden that we feel is not self-induced. My wife and I feel this burden. As we prepare in less than two weeks a first birthday for a baby, where we will celebrate his birth at the cemetery. The widow or the widower or divorcee or single person feels this weight of a sin-sick world every time they're in a crowd of people watching married couples together. The couple burdened with infertility, the parent grieving a child who has rejected the Lord, both feel the weight of this burden of futility and of sin and of Satan. So where does our hope come from? Where did our dear sister in this passage before us find hope? The question is, was she even looking for it? We know nothing of this woman's motives. She was at the synagogue to see, was was she at the synagogue to see Jesus in hopes of him healing her? We're not told. Was she there simply out of duty? As I said, her motivations are not addressed. What we do know is that Jesus describes her as a daughter of Abraham, which is the only place in the entire Bible where that phrase is used. In some basic way, this points us to the covenantal promises that God had given to Abraham. But it also may have some echoes of the faith of Abraham that we see in Romans chapter 4, verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Whatever the reason that she was there, there was only one who could free her, and she was found by him, and she was freed through him. She's like Christian when he arrives at the cross and his burden falls from, her back, falls from his back and rolls into the sepulcher, never to be seen again. Dear Christian, if you are in Christ, which is what being a Christian means, Jesus has already found you and he's already freed you. You can lean on him. Yet even after this glory-inspiring healing, there were others standing there who did not appreciate this unbinding and weighing. They were upset that she was freed and unburdened in the wrong way, which leads us to point number two, bound by the law. Look again to verses 14 through 17. But the ruler of the synagogue, and indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, Do not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox and his donkey from the manger 
and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. So this synagogue ruler sounds like a real sweetheart. He's a real Mr. Congeniality. This poor woman, who as you can imagine would have been known around town for her hunched posture, is healed in front of everyone. And all he can say is, wrong day, Jesus. All this leader had to offer was more law. More binding. For all of his knowledge, requisite to his position as the ruler of a synagogue, he completely missed what the psalmist said in Psalm 146. Who executes justice for the oppressed? Who gives, hung- the food hungry- who gives food to the hungry? Who- the Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. Here's a crazy part that I learned this week. As I said at the beginning, it's part of the Sabbath, lit- the, the Sabbath literature, uh, liturgy. They were to recite a prayer which included 18 blessings. Well, within those blessings were a request for the blessing of healing, a request for the freedom of those who are bound, a request for the heretics to be put to shame, and a request for the Messiah to come. This leader was so intent on the right observation of the law, that he failed to see that the fulfillment in the answer to those prayers was standing in front of him, doing the very things that the assembly together had prayed for. He was zealous for the law. He was zealous for piety. His words of rebuke and warning betray that his zeal for the law, in his zeal for the law, he was completely missed the character, the goodness, and the glory of the lawgiver revealed in ordinances of the law. He was like Mr. Worldly Wise Man, who Christian met on the road, who told him to go find Mr. Legality in the city of morality to have his burden loosed from his back. So Christian leaves the way and follows this advice. He had to pass under a mountain, which we later find out is Mount Sinai, where the law was given. And he felt this law, and Christian was afraid this mountain would fall on him. Evangelist, who is a guide to Christian, then informs Christian that Mr. Legality is not actually able to free him, but is himself in bondage. He is like that little legalist in each one of us that Jamie preached about several weeks ago. There are those who turn to vice of drinking and sex and drugs and all manner of depravity. But there is an equal damning propensity for us as believers and as moral people to turn to the law keeping and personal piety as means of being right with God. I say equally damning because at its core, legalism is a dependence on self. This is why I believe that Sinclair Ferguson in his book, The Whole Christ, has it exactly right when he argues that legalism and antinomianism, antinomianism basically meaning easy believism, are the same thing and two sides of the same coin and both equally opposite to the gospel. Both point to ourselves and our actions of dependence and freedom from, both point to ourselves instead of our actions and dependence and freedom from and through Christ. It is easy to assume when my life is going well, my marriage is easy, 
My children are happy and healthy. My friendships are drama-free. I'm getting promotions at work. That the result of all of that is my right li- that the cause of all of that is my right living. Or I can look at others and see the mess of their lives and assume that if they lived like me and acted like me and had spiritual disciplines like me, they would be blessed like me. You know, but be careful. Because you are no more blessed and no more pious and no more right with God than the Apostle Paul who said, the Lord gave me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me so that he may not become conceited. Never assume or act that all your reading and study and practice of spiritual disciplines and service of others are the fruits of the Spirit. They are burdens like everything else unless... They're the outflow, the external evidences of the real fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are meant to be the driving force, the paradigm behind our decisions and the way we live our lives. So here's a diagnostic question for you. Does your pursuit of holiness cause, feel like a greater burden or freedom? Jamie likes to say, love God, do as you please. This religious leader would have been very uncomfortable with this statement. His actions betray his hypocrisy and those who agreed with him and their lack of love and devotion to God to whom the law points. They miss the fact that the institution of the Sabbath was not a burden, but the Sabbath itself pointed to the provider king. The provider king who so beautifully used the narrative pattern of six and one in the creation account to point us to his total rule and their utter dependence. Jesus' sharp response back at them exposed them. They saw their animals as more free than this daughter of Abraham. But the glorious thing about this rebuke is how it both exposes them and frees the people. The adversaries are exposed and put to open shame while the people are freed from the bondage of the law that caused their bondage to the law that caused their praise to be withheld when Jesus freed the woman. Notice the flow here. Jesus stood her up and she is freed and Luke tells us that she glorified God. Then the ruler gives his rebuke and warning and Jesus responds. It is then that this chorus of one, the woman, expands to All the people rejoice at all the glorious things done by him. The people went from silence under the withering rebuke of the ruler to rejoicing after Jesus revealed the hypocrisy and hopelessness of the law to save. Jesus, the fulfillment of the law, to whom it pointed, freed them from the misapplication of the law by the religious leaders. They were bound by trying to keep the law as articulated to them by their leaders in order to be right with God. But Jesus frees them to see his works and words as glorious fulfillment of the law. This leads us to our third point. Jesus' kingdom of freedom from little to big. Now we can look at these parables at the end of the chapter. Starting verse 18. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard that a man mustard seed that a man took and sowed in the garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made their nests, 
made nests in its branches. And he said, again, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. To be honest, when I started looking at this passage, I wasn't quite sure how these parables of the kingdom directly connected to the previous section. But as every good Bible student knows, if you see a therefore, you have to go back and see what it was there for. So let's review the context so that we can understand what the therefore is there for. Jesus teaching the people Jesus is teaching the people on the Sabbath, and he notices that there is a woman bound with a disabling spirit. And he frees her. Then Mr. Congeniality steps in and rebukes the woman for being healed on the Sabbath, rebukes Jesus for healing on the Sabbath, and warns the people not to form a line to take a number and get their own ailments healed. Jesus then drops an epic roast, puts his adversaries to open shame, And frees the people to see and respond to the glory of Jesus as the true purpose of Sabbath. So now we arrive at this point where Jesus is explaining to his hearers and to the people present and to us what he means and what this means. He says, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? So I ask myself the question, what does the parables about the expansion of the kingdom have to do with the healing on the Sabbath day? Why is Jesus talking about kingdom in this context? Is, there, is this just another description of the, Jesus being Lord of the Sabbath? And what does it actually mean for Jesus to be Lord of the Sabbath anyway? You know, the one thing I've already alluded to is that the Sabbath ordinance and the pattern six and one found in the Jewish work week modeled after the creation narrative is not bound, is not a burden, but the Sabbath itself pointed to the provider king. This provider king used the narrative pattern of six and one in creation to reveal his total rule and their utter dependence. In Genesis 2, it says that God rested on the seventh day. Now, this word rested is the Greek Hebrew word sabbat, where we get our word Sabbath. But this doesn't just mean rest. What it actually, what it fully means is that God was resting. He was taking his seat of authority in his royal temple palace or creation. You know, I take this brief excursus to point out the the fact that the reality of every time we talk about the Sabbath, we're actually talking about the reign of God over the things that have been made. The point of Sabbath rest is to show us and remind us that God is the provider's king whose sabbatical rest is a royal enthronement where he rules from heaven over the things that he has made. And our Sabbath rest is a remembrance and recognition of our dependence on him. Sabbath equals kingdom. So back to the passage at hand. In freeing this woman from Satan bondage and people from the misapplied law on the Sabbath, Jesus is showing himself to be the provider king of the new creation kingdom that will grow out of the ever-expanding effect, freeing effect of his gospel. So with this biblical theological context in mind, let's go back to these particular par- these parables and take them each in turn. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in the garden. And it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air 
may nest in its branches. Notice how this kingdom grows. It's like a tree that grows upward and outward. This mirrors the patterns of the freeing of the woman, doesn't it? First she is healed and she offers praise to God upward. Then as a result, Jesus, a result of Jesus correcting the ruler, all of the people rejoice in all of the things that Jesus has done outward. As Jesus frees and teaches, the attention of the people present are reoriented and refocused to God, and by it they are freed and the kingdom grows from little to big. And if you look at the book of Acts at Pentecost, you see the same trajectory. It starts with 120 in the upper room, and the Spirit falls upon them, and then after one sermon you add 3,000 souls that are added to the kingdom from little to big. This spread of the kingdom is through the means that we might not see as helpful on the surface, like a synagogue leader yelling at the people. But through the correcting his indignation, Jesus works to spread the freeing work to all of the people. We see this again in Acts. As a result of the persecution in Jerusalem, Christians are scattered. But by... But this only means the kingdom is growing outward as they take the gospel with them. Then in chapter 11, we find some of those same Christians who scattered from Jerusalem in Antioch. And it was to there that Barnabas goes and gets Paul and brings him. And it is from Antioch that Paul and Barnabas are sent on the first missionary journey. It was the persecution that led to the spread of the kingdom all over the world. And those outside who are far off, the birds of the air as it were, are brought into the kingdom. It is spreading outward and upward. In the next parable, we see another pattern, inward and through. And again, he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. As Jesus responds to the religious leader, he presses and he is pressing the truth of what Sabbath means and who he is through it. He is pressing inward into the people. And by it, it is correcting the erroneous understandings about God. This is what the Spirit does within each of us, and corporately as His church. The gospel of the kingdom of Christ brought into our hearts, and from there the sanctifying work of the Spirit permeates through our whole lives and as we are made into the image of Christ. So if you're not a believer here, if you're not a Christian here today, if you have not been relieved of your burden at the cross. I'm glad that you're here. Some of these things may sound strange to you. Maybe you're like the ruler of the synagogue or Mr. Legality, and you think that you can rid, get rid of your own burden. But I'm going to tell you, there is no person, no amount of doing more and trying harder, that can alleviate your guilt. There is no amount of adhering yourself to the social virtue of this world and this age that will placate the feeling that we all have that we are not enough. And we cannot save ourselves. But you may say that you aren't burdened by guilt. And that you don't need freeing. But Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 sums up your predicament. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. In which you once walked. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature 
children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It is quite possible that you are so entrenched in your captivity that you have lived with it for so long that you've forgotten that you are even bound. The bonds that tie you are seen by you as merely the latest fashion. I assure you they are not. They are deadly cords tethering you to your final destruction. There are others who may say, well, Pastor Steve, don't worry, I went, I went forward in church. I raised my hand at an invitation. I walked an aisle. I'm good. Maybe. If those things are accompanied by the gifts of repentance and faith and evidenced by the turning to Christ by the power of the Spirit, then good. But remember, there is no religious ritual of Sabbath-keeping or aisle-walking that can free you, only Christ. Jesus is the only one who can save. Jesus is the only one who can lift the burden of guilt from your shoulders. Jesus is the only one who defeated death and is the only one who can give you new life so that you can see and flee your bondage to death and sin. If you turn to Jesus in repentance and faith, Jesus promises that whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I want you to take some time to think about these things. Read the rest of the book of Luke. Write down any questions that you have and come back next week. This is a church full of people who would love to help you see and savor the Savior. Now, as we close this morning, it is by this inward and through permeation of the kingdom of, in our lives that the kingdom spreads outward and upward. As sinners are freed from sin and Satan, they are bright, brought into Christ's kingdom of freedom. For freedom, Christ has set us free, it says in Galatians chapter 5. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. The point of the healing, the point of the teaching and the rebuke, the point of the parables, the bedrock truth that these things are supposed to point us to is that Jesus is the provider king through whom freedom from Satan and from sin and from the condemnation of the law is brought. He is the answer to the prayers in the synagogue liturgy. He is the one who lifts up the bowed down. He is the one who sets the captive free. In the case of the synagogue ruler, he is the one who silenced the heretic. Because of this, we can all rejoice with all of the people in the freedom that Christ has brought as we're brought into his kingdom of freedom. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, forgive us for our lack of faith. We have been bound by sin and Satan and you have set us free. And yet so often we live as if we are still bound. Turn our eyes and our hearts to the glorious, glorious freedom that we have in you. We are weighed down by many troubles in this world of, subject, of subjections to futility. Save us. Stand us upright again. Turn our faces from navel-gazing to seeking your face. How often when blessings overflow in our lives, we so selfishly and hypocritically attribute it to ourselves, our piety and our devotion. But in this, we are like the synagogue ruler who trusted in, in, not in you, but in himself. Forgive us. You alone are good. And you alone is freedom. 
Let our praise resound in building and build as you build your kingdom of freedom. Amen. So is this morning for our assurance of pardon. We return back to Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom, freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery.